Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Corient has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. We knew the business that we had wasn't working. And so with the last bit of cash that we had, we managed to pull in every single favor that we had left. Um, our friends and family had said, look, we really love you guys, but we're not, we're not giving you any more money. This is a terrible business, like, well done, but enough's enough. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how a Buddhist monk and a stressed-out marketing consultant sat down at a Starbucks and wound up launching Headspace, a meditation app that has millions of users around the world. So we've had several episodes that feature co-founders, and if there's one thing that's clear, it's that all of them brought different skills to the table. At Method, Adam Lowry mixed the ingredients to make the soap. Eric Ryan designed the now-iconic bottles. At Reddit, Steve Huffman did the coding. Alexis Ohanian did the content. And at Away, Jen Rubio focused on building buzz for the suitcases. Steph Corey figured out how to get them made. So you get the point, right? And it's almost hard to imagine any of these companies making it without both co-founders. And that is also probably the case with today's story, because it's a story of two totally different people with totally different strengths. One of them, Andy Puttycomb, trained as a Buddhist monk for more than a decade. 
The other, Rich Pearson, was a rising star at a top-tier advertising agency in London. They met because Rich was spiraling. He was burnt out and looking for help. And Andy was the person he happened to come across. At the time, Andy was offering one-on-one meditation sessions out of a back room of a doctor's office. Neither Andy nor Rich could have imagined that eventually the two of them would build a meditation app, Headspace, now used by millions of people, and a business that generates more than $100 million in annual revenue. And the story of how they came together at the exact right moment, each with the exact skill set they needed to co-found and build Headspace, well, it's a pretty long journey. And Andy, the Buddhist monk, he would say that it took as long as it was supposed to. But it actually starts when Andy was growing up in the UK in the 1980s. He was first introduced to meditation as a kid, around the time his parents' marriage started to fall apart. Yes, my parents split up at 10, and and my mum was... I think she was she was looking for a way to cope. Meditation definitely was within her kind of sphere of, of interest. And in Bristol, there was a, a local group. It was a TM group, Transcendental Meditation Group. And she decided that she was going to do a, a six-week course. And my sister, I found out, was going along with her. And I didn't want to be at home on my own. So I asked if I could join them. Yeah, and it led to actually kind of a couple of years of doing that kind of thing into my early teens. This is in like the early 80s when meditation was by yeah. no means um, mainstream. I mean, even sort of Western. Oh, it was so outside of mainstream. <laughs> yeah. And, and did it feel weird or different when you were a kid? Did you feel like this was a little unusual? It did, but I don't know if I had that point of comparison. You know, as a kid, you don't necessarily have the this is this is weird and that's not. My mum was going there, so I was going there. It wasn't until um, I told a really good friend of mine, he's still a very good friend of mine, I shared with him, confided in him that I'd been going to do this thing because I knew it was a little bit kind of weird. And um, and I went into school the next day and um, all the other kids in the class were sat on their desk, cross-legged, sort of omming mm. um, at mm. me as I walked in the room. And it was at that point, I, I think then I registered that, oh, okay, this is definitely not something that is mainstream. And it's probably not something that I'm going to be able to talk about too much to other people. And what, what was it? Was it focusing on breathing? Do you, do you remember what those group sessions were like? With TM, it's typically a mantra. So you're, you're given sort of a, a word or a phrase and you repeat it over and over for sort of a 20-minute period. And at that time, I found it really, really difficult as, a, as an energetic young kid to sit there and be still and to focus. But it was definitely something that I still found, you know, I still look back at it with a, a sense that it was, it was a very positive influence at a, an early stage in my life. When you were, like, 16, because in, in the UK it's a little different than in the US, which is certainly at that time, like, the drinking age yeah. probably wasn't really enforced, and it was typical for 15, 16-year-old <laughs> kids to, to go to pubs yeah. and get pints of beer, and yep. drinking cultures is very different there. Were you into that? Were you part of that? I was very into that. By that stage, I was playing in a rugby team as well, and it was very much part of the, the culture. Yeah, we'd go out at, at the weekend with our, with our fake ID and go and find some drinks. Um, I read that um, around this time, like in your teens, um, while you were at a, a pub one night, um, 
you went through a, a kind of a pretty traumatic experience. Yeah. Um, what what happened? Um, it was um, Christmas Eve. We'd had a party at the local rugby club in in Canesham, and so it was Christmas morning. By the time we all sort of came out onto the the street, and we were standing in a, a big group outside the the club, and a a drunk driver came down the road and crashed into to the group of us. And I was just very lucky to be standing on the edge of the group, but it, it killed two people and, and injured, sort of put in sort of critical, like intensive care, like 12, 12 of the group. Mm. And, you know, every single one of us there that night dealt with, dealt with it in a, a different way. I think we were all very confused. You know, we're still young, like 18 years old, you know. I don't know if we ever really kind of know how to deal with that kind of thing. Um, I just wanted to get away. I think we often do this, right? Like the idea, the sense of getting away in a physical way, kind of we think that we're going to be able to outrun it mentally as well. And of course we never can. So, yeah, like I think a really, to this day, you know, kind of a really important and impactful part of, of my own journey. So, so I guess eventually um, you left home. You went, uh, you went to college, and you started um, studying at a, a place called De Montfort University. By the way, where, like, where is that? Yeah, that's in, um, it's in Bedford. So it was a sports college, and actually, I didn't go straight there. So my grades weren't good enough. So I went and spent a couple of years in actually here in in the U.S. doing some coachings of sports. So I already trained prior to university. I trained as a, a personal trainer, so I was already working in sort of gyms and things. Um, really enjoying that. Um, till eventually, um, when I was twenty one, I got in as a they call it as a mature student in England. It just basically means your grades don't have to be quite as good, and you're a little bit older, so they let you in. I think it's a pity thing, and I, <laughs> I started studying sports science. So you, um, you're at university, and you decide to drop out um, in the middle of it. Yeah. What? Why? What? What happened? Yeah. So I was just increasingly, you know, I just felt this sense of disturbance or unsatisfactoriness. I kind of felt like I was doing something I enjoyed, but I, I just didn't feel like it was really making me happy. And at the time, I was going out with this girl um, who lived there kind of locally. And we we talked a lot. You know, she was really into to Buddhism and stuff. And, and you know, she talked with a huge amount of admiration about these monks and nuns that would go away and, and meditate and try and understand their mind, you know. And, and it was just into the second year. Um, it was pretty early on. Just had a day, you know, where all of a sudden that seemed to make a lot of sense. I just, it was like an inexplicable feeling that I I just had to do this. So much so that I went into university that same afternoon and said, I'm going to leave. This is what I'm going to do. So just, I just want to understand this. You are in your second year of college. Yeah. You're kind of just, something's missing, which is not unusual for a young person in their 20s, early 20s to kind of experience. Yeah. And you decide that, want to go and study buddhism and become a monk i'm yeah i mean just yeah (laughs) i would frame it ever so slightly differently you're absolutely correct but my experience of it was not that it's not that i sat there and chose to do it i genuinely felt 
nothing else made sense. It was it didn't even feel like a choice. I didn't I didn't sit there for days thinking should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? What are the pros? What are the cons? Uh, it sounds I'm aware of how strange that sounds to just suddenly think one day you're going to quit college and go and become a Buddhist monk. But at the time for what it's worth, it felt like a calling that I couldn't sort of ignore. So this is like sort of really pre-internet, you know, browser days. Definitely. So you could just like go to the internet yeah. in your university library and like look up, you know, how to become a Buddhist monk or like where do I go? Yeah. Yeah, so what did yeah. you so, what were, <laughs> so you decide that you're going to drop out of university and how do you even yeah. find out what to do? I mean, firstly, I just love the idea that that's even kind of a search option on on Google these days, how, how to become a monk. Sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess it is, and there are probably people kind of Googling that. But no, back then, I'd read a little bit, and most of the stuff I had read was from Southeast Asia. So it has its home in, in Thailand and Vietnam and, and Sri Lanka. Um, so I started thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to Thailand. I knew of a teacher who um, was there, who I really kind of respected. I enjoyed their writing. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. But this girlfriend of mine said, oh, a friend of mine's just come back from, from the Himalayas. She went to visit the Dalai Lama. He was in northern India in this kind of small town. I went and got a, a Lonely Planet guy from the local library and looked it up and thought, well, that looks interesting. Okay, maybe I'll fly to Delhi instead. And, you know, the Dalai Lama's there. must be a, a pretty good place. So I flew into, I flew into Delhi. Um, I think um, I'd done a little bit of research and I printed some stuff out before I went. And I knew of a retreat center. So I went to the retreat center and said kind of, you know, this is, this is what I'd like to do. Could I just start off maybe by working here, kind of maybe doing some retreat? And I was there for probably six months or so before then going on to Thailand and Burma sort of to actually train in a in a monastery. And when you got there um, to Burma, what, like what was the commitment you were making? Like how long were you going to be there? In that particular tradition, you don't make a time commitment. I did it later on in the Tibetan tradition I did. Um, but I started training as a, as a novice monk. And it was of all the of all the training it was really full-on it was way more full-on than what i'd come from in in india yeah i mean what do you what do you mean like what was a typical day like so in burma um it was just meditation so we were doing an 18 hour day so it's eight hours of sitting and eight hours of walking meditation all in the same room plus in the two hours for for eating at five in the morning and 11 um you'd have lunch and then no eating after midday and then you'd have somewhere around three, three and a half hours sleep at, at night time. And that was it, seven days a week. Wow. So it was, it was a really, I mean, really kind of quite extreme. Retrospectively, I think I would have done things a little differently. Um, there was no one there. There were no English people there. Um, there was no one who spoke really English. Even my teacher there didn't really speak any English. So every afternoon I had 10 minutes with him and I'd go and sit there and he'd look at me and he'd sort of smile and look very kind of warm and happy. And sometimes I'd sit there and I'd smile and kind of laugh. And other days I'd sit there and I'd cry. And he didn't really have anything to say because he didn't speak English. <laughs> sometimes he'd just speak Burmese anyway. And I would just sit there and kind of, you know. So there wasn't a lot of instruction taking place. You know, I've, I've talked to people who've done Vipassana, which is like 10 days silent retreat, and who, who've had like, and certainly in the first few days, really broken down, you know, really just emotional yeah. breakdowns. It's so hard. Um, it yeah. so, feels so isolating. You must have experienced that. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I definitely, I, I, I met a part of myself that I had never previously experienced, and it was vulnerable, it was painful, challenging in ways, yeah, I don't even know how to describe. Were you still thinking, yep, I, I want to become a monk? Like, I, I mean, to, to me, I think 90% of people would have just dropped out of that point and said, eh, this isn't for me. I think there's different ways of looking at that. I think through the lens of a Buddhist monk, I think you just look at it and say, well, it's karma, you know, kind of that was my journey and, you know, this is the journey I'm on. And I kind of, it did, you know, when you're living your life and it just feels like you're in the right place in the right time, even if it's difficult, there's still a sense that this is, this is just where I should be right now. So even when it was difficult, I still felt that this is where I should be right now. (laughs) But yeah, eventually kind of there was a point where I think I kept getting ill in Asia as well. You know, like that is the, the additional challenge. It's not just the challenges of the mind. It's the challenges of the stomach and the bowels as well. And I remember eventually a, a teacher from Australia coming and he said, look, honestly, he said, if you want to kind of go and do like a, a year retreat or a two year retreat or something like that, he said, I'd probably try and do it in the West if you can. He said, find a good teacher. But he said, it's so much easier to do that. So, I, yeah, I started sort of looking at some, some other places as well. And, and I met this teacher, this Tibetan Lama. And, um, you know, we talked a lot. By that stage, I'd already kind of done multiple years. I don't know, probably four years, something like that, of training. And we talked, a, we talked a lot. And I was so moved by his warmth, by his compassion, by his sense of joy. Things that I'd not necessarily... I'd witnessed a lot of awareness and focus and attention in other monasteries, but I hadn't really kind of seen this other sort of side. And, yeah, I made the decision. It was really easy, again, kind of actually, this is what I've been looking for. And, yeah, now, I don't know, how many years later, 25 years later, he's still he's still my teacher now. Hmm. So, Andy, I mean, during this period, like, I assume that you'd go home now and again, uh, you know, to visit family and friends. And when you did, like, what did they think of you did they feel like you changed a lot yeah so i do remember going back um so i was i was fully ordained and i remember walking down the high street so i mean this is a small town in the southwest of england i'm walking down there in my bright sort of maroon robes and seeing kind of old school teachers and you know old mates and then saying to my friends kind of hey it'd be great to all meet up together and I'm and they're like sure yeah just come down to the pub we'll be there like where we always are and I'm thinking in my mind you know there's this conflict of oh, I'm a monk I can't walk into a pub as a monk and maybe it's okay if I just drink water and look they're not going to meet me anywhere else because like genuinely they've been sat in those same chairs for many years yeah they weren't going to give them up so I did. I, I walked into our, our local pub where we all used to hang out as teenagers and I sat down around a table. I remember there were eight of us around this table. I drank water, they drank beer, and we talked about the Himalayas. Wow. But I, I never felt like I I lost touch with the character or the person that I grew up with. It wasn't like a different person. Yeah. It was just I was having a different experience. Okay, I want to I want to kind of fast forward just a, a couple of years to to the early 2000s, because I guess at a certain point, you actually wind up in Moscow, in Russia, um, teaching at a meditation center there. Yeah. And and I guess you were sort of, you were supposed to be there, like, waiting until you could get a spot at 
like one of these long-term retreats. Yeah. Is is that right? Absolutely. So there was a there was a four-year retreat coming up at one of the monasteries, and this retreat just kept getting pushed back. So I found myself in Moscow for a number of years, kind of teaching meditation, but waiting to go into long-term retreat and. So I think on the one hand, I was thinking, okay, I want to make a long-term commitment to, to retreat and better understanding my mind. And on the other hand, I was getting this kind of experience of what does it mean to teach meditation, you know? And it wasn't what I'd set out to do, but I kind of accidentally found myself in a position where, where I, was, I was then teaching. You were teaching meditation in Moscow to Russians in English? Correct. And mixed in with the Russians were a bunch of expats who lived in in Moscow. And I got to know people who would come along to these centers, kind of alongside the the sessions that we'd have at the center. I'd meet up with them. And then one of the expats had invited me to to go in and teach his execs, an oil company in, in Russia. And he said, look, you know, kind of, you can't come in dressed as a Buddhist monk. You know, it's, it's an oil company. We're in Moscow. Um, and, and that had got me thinking about this whole idea of, you know, demystifying this and trying, trying to make it more accessible. You go back to the UK in 2004 after um, mm-hmm. a couple of years in, in Russia to study circus arts. This is a total, like, let's out of left field. People are going <laughs> to listen to this and say, wait, what? I know. Wait, I thought you were a monk. You were doing, when you learned, join the circus? What, what's, what's the story? Yeah, so... It sounds crazy. I know. It it <laughs> it actually stay stay with me, guy. It it does actually make more sense than okay. it than it first sounds. What happened was I was in Moscow, and I'd already made the decision actually to sort of hand back my robes to no longer be a monk. Mm. Why? Um, so I found increasingly over the years that I was there that, as I say, I was meeting people and I was finding a way of talking about meditation in a way that. I had never experienced myself, and but that seemed to really resonate with people. You found a and way to explain it to people in language that you exactly you wished you had had. E- exactly that. So I found myself living in Moscow, still teaching in the meditation center, but no longer living as a monk. Hmm. And I hadn't done any exercise for 10 years. And I was really excited about doing some exercise. And a friend of mine there was doing a degree at Moscow State Circus. And he said, look, you know, I used to do a lot of acrobatics and stuff and juggling. And he was like, well, why don't you just come along, you know, meet some of my teachers? So I did. And I don't really kind of know how it happened, but I was there. And one of them said, hey, look, you know, you can do a degree in this back in London. And I was already thinking, okay, how do I make this transition from Buddhist monk living in a monastery, to kind of making this content more available. Yeah. I had no money. As a monk, you give away all your belongings. So I'd given yeah. away all my clothes, money, everything. So I was thinking, how am I going to go from Russia back to England? And I kind of saw an opportunity, I guess, as a, now a very mature student um, at 32. Um, I, was, I was in a position where the government would essentially kind of pay for everything. like Fund your education to study... To study circus? Or? So, yes. Yeah, so so they, they funded not only the degree, but they also funded my, my living as well. So, you know, I, was, I got into a situation where I didn't have to find kind of a job when I yeah. went back to the UK. So by during the day, I went to school and studied, studied circus arts. It was, a, it was a big, big difference. 
And meantime, in your mind, you had this idea of, I think I can make meditation more accessible. Yeah, I mean, every available. I was up at four o'clock in the morning writing content and trying to work out kind of, okay, well, what is this thing that I want to do? But alongside that, running in parallel was I managed to find uh, a place where I could teach teach meditation just doing one-to-one at that point I found a a doctor um, who ran an integrative health center in London where they had everything from sort of rheumatic specialists to cardiac specialists you know right across the board all different disciplines and he had heard of mindfulness and he said well look if you can make it work here then I'm, I'm happy to to give you one of the the clinic's rooms who were the kinds of people who were going to see you? Were they were they people who were suffering from medical ailments? Were they people who just had work stress? Or were they kind of hippy-dippy kind of people? Or people in suits and ties? <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, they, the, I, I deliberately chose that clinic um, or that kind of approach because I didn't want it to be in a, an alternative kind of health clinic or something. You know, I wanted it to feel really kind of mainstream Mm. that was that was intentional it was also in the city it was in the financial district of london so most of the people i was seeing um, worked in the financial industry they were struggling with depression anxiety insomnia migraine it was broad but i would i would say that they were all struggling with many of the the things that we we all suffer with in in life now so in london were you convening like larger meditation groups or was it mainly one-on-one groups so i did i'd started with some workshops so the the, in the clinic i was primarily yeah but by that stage i'd I'd finished kind of studying um at the at the surf school i was working full-time in the clinic seeing anything from i don't know six to ten people a day um and i started at weekends i started i did a few a few workshops but it only really changed to sort of much larger larger groups after i met my now very good good friend rich um, who's the co-founder of Headspace. Uh, so this is probably a good time to bring you in, Rich. You've been sitting here patiently. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, and as I understand it, like you, when you met Andy, you were, uh, I guess, in your mid-20s yeah. and working in London at this sort of high-powered ad agency called BBH. Is that right? Yeah, I was working on Kingly Street right in the middle of Soho, yeah. Right. So, so you're like sort of day-to-day life was probably like working all day and like not getting much sleep and was that more or less what it was like yeah i was working a lot like we you know if we were pitching we'd often work 15 16 hour days and we would it was client services so you were you know you were at the behest of clients so you had to work crazy hours but at the same time there was just a lot of there's a lot of drinking and partying that went with the culture um, and it was a way to kind of really let off steam. Everyone worked really hard and played really, really hard. It was very hard living, I would say, for for in those early years when I when I was working for sure. Um, did you like that life? Well, I loved. To be honest with you, I absolutely loved it when I I felt like I'd found my career calling, and I loved that I could be around creative people and come up with creative kind of products. Over time, though, I think when I gave up drinking um, when I kind of decided that I was not going to kind of live as hard you know I just knew I didn't want to do that anymore and I kind of I felt the kind of the shallow nature of selling people (laughs) things that they maybe didn't want Mm. and I just wasn't getting I just wasn't getting any joy from that experience and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I was getting acupuncture at the time because I was just getting more and more anxious as I kind of didn't really feel like I understood my place in the world 
And then that, the, the person that was giving me the acupuncture said, look, and I was obviously telling him about my job and how unhappy I was, said, look, I've, got, I've actually got a course starting next month. Have you ever thought about being an acupuncturist? I think you'd be a brilliant acupuncturist. <laughs> and I said, no, I've, I've never considered that. And, but I, yeah, I went in the, the next week and, and I quit and decided that I was going to go and become an acupuncturist. <laughs> yeah, that's how that happened. Wow. So did you start taking classes? Yeah, I, I just felt like I wanted to do something that had some impact. And so I started the course three days a week in a normal academic kind of calendar. And then I was freelancing for the rest of the time to kind of make money. Um, Free, do freelance advertising? Well, freelance kind of just marketing of advice. Like, it was weird when I kind of quit my job lots of people reached out and so I kind of managed to cobble together quite a few independent jobs that was enough to kind of pay my you know pay my mortgage and I got a flatmate and I managed to kind of survive that way and pay for my course so you're doing that and how did you come across Andy I mean at that time he's teaching meditation in in the city in London um did you hear about him from someone else yes the the one of the there's a guy called Adam Breeden who had a business called All Star Lanes and he had asked me to help him out with some marketing so I was helping him yeah we'd become good friends and I was open about you know how anxious I was feeling and just how that was getting progressively worse and he'd been getting one-on-one lessons from Andy um, and he suggested I should go and meet Andy like Andy had this clinic and he wanted some help with it so it was this skill swap you know I met Andy and he had the clinic and so he said look why don't you know I'll put you through the the clinic experience and I think I can help you and maybe you can help me with some ideas for the clinic. And Andy what did you think that Rich could help you with did you think he might be able to help me figure out a way to get this out to more people? Yeah I think I think exactly that you know I I could see that it was working for people and people who previously wouldn't have looked at meditation were getting benefit from it. At that time, I was starting to put together, I was thinking, like, do I start trying to train other people to teach meditation? Do I try and take this into workplaces? I just didn't really kind of, I had no idea. I had zero business experience, but also no idea how to to brand it or anything, you know, kind of. And I just thought that, that Rich could could help sort of Help me, yeah, take this idea outside of the the Mm. clinic and beyond. That's right. So there was a Starbucks that was over the road. And so we would, before the session, we would go over the road and Andy would tell me all his ideas. I'd give him loads of ideas. Um, And then we'd go over to the clinic and he would teach me meditation. So I really kind of started. It was very much an exchange of skills Mm. with no real sense of where where it would go. But Andy, I mean, what, what did you say to Rich? Like, did you say, hey, you know, um, I want to start an education company. I want to make, uh, like, pamphlets. Like, was it was it not that specific? I think it was more about, look, I really want to demystify meditation. I want to get meditation out there. I want to get more people meditating. I don't know how to do it, kind of yeah. outside of the yeah. clinic. At which point I said, how do you feel about the name? Because he's, 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 <laughs> he was like, I really wanted to demystify meditation. I said, talk to me about the name. It was, it was called Asunya. That's right. Which Andy can, but is That was the name of your clinic, Asunya? Yeah, it, Asunya. It was, it was called Asunya. So, so Sunya, Sunyata and Asunyata, which sort of the old Sanskrit yeah. words. But um, Asunya means kind of bringing the, um, 
making something real out of emptiness. Mm. And so, like, the, the sentiment of it was kind of right in the yeah. sense that kind of I wanted to bring something into the world that kind of, you know, people hadn't necessarily experienced. But, I mean, an old Sanskrit name, probably not the right way to demystify something. So you guys start this process of just kind of brainstorming. In the meantime, Rich, you're going through a course, right? Like a, a meditation course. Yeah, and he's teaching me, as he would his clients in the clinic... It was a 10-week course, and it was just a really good kind of training experience. The aim of it at the start, it yeah. really was just a kind of simple exchange. This was like a almost like a barter. It's, it's not a great word, yeah. but like yeah. you, you yeah. gave – Andy gave Rich free meditation sessions, and, and Rich, you gave Andy free consulting. Yeah, that was very much yeah. how it worked. <laughs> yeah. Get the better end of that deal. Like, who who was gonna lose more money out of it? Because Rich, you're probably charging a lot of money for your consulting fees. I think I got the better. Deal. No, I don't, I don't. No, honestly, I do. Genuinely, I kind of you know. I remember when I the second time I went to see him, I I basically wrote out a stream of consciousness of everything that was in my mind because I, I couldn't make sense of it, and so I, I didn't know how to explain in words what was going on in my mind, and so I just made wrote this. When I think back of this, this madness of. Uh, like double-sided, kind of 18 <laughs> sides of pure drivel, really, mm. when, I, when I think about it. And Andy, I gave it to Andy. I said, look, this is what's going on. And he patiently read every single word in front of me and never, like, a look of judgment or anything on his face. And at the end of it, it was just like, look, I think, one, I think this is, like, very normal, and two, you know, I, I think I can help you with it. And so to hear that when you felt desperate, is I yeah one of the like the kindest things anyone can ever do for you. So huh. I think I genuinely definitely think I got the better I got the better end of the deal than than Andy. So Andy, I imagine that most of the people who came and saw you really liked you because you are there to help them. What did you like about Rich, or what did you did you? I mean, there must have been some kind of connection between the two of you pretty quickly. Yeah, you know, obviously we we got on very well, but we had a shared sense of anything is possible just i think that was just our character i think whether it was we were born with it how we kind of got brought up in different households but we both had a shared sense that anything was possible we both shared a naive optimism and ambition i think we both got energy from being with the other person so you're meeting regularly and you're kind of brainstorming and at what point did the two of you say hey let's do something together was was it the feeling from the beginning or or did that evolve well i think yeah i don't think it right from the beginning i definitely no. didn't think that that was no. going to be the thing i thought i was genuinely just helping andy and i just felt very grateful that i was getting help with my anxiety <laughs> and so i just thought it was genuinely like a, a skill swap but the i think the moment it kind of became clear was when we were talking about what it could be and we got a sense of that kind of shared understanding. And Andy actually said to me, would you come and would you like to work with me? <laughs> and I thought he was saying, it's my business, would you like to come and work for me? And I was like, yeah, sure. He said, well, I can't afford to, to kind of pay you, um, but would you do it? And I was like, yeah, of course. And it was at that point that Andy said to me, no, I, like as a 50-50 partner, like I want... I want, let's start this thing together. And that was the first time, genuinely, that I thought, oh, he actually wants to do a, a business with me. When 
we come back in just a moment, how Rich and Andy turned the one-on-one meditation experience in the clinic into an app used by millions of people all over the world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. For Smart Energy is a proud sponsor of How I Built This. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligrams of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins, and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. They taste great, and they really work, especially after hours of interviews when I'm mentally exhausted and I need a boost to help me get my focus back. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Pick up a case of Smart Energy today at Costco. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. On the rare day when I'm not doing an interview, I definitely spend my time taking a long walk. It's nice to have a little downtime, but not all of our listeners are so lucky. If you're a business owner or a hiring manager, you likely work around the clock. How can you get help, at least help finding people with the right skills for your open roles? ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash built. ZipRecruiter's technology finds and sends highly qualified candidates for your position right to your inbox. And if you see a candidate you really like, it's easy to send them a personal invitation. So take a break from hiring and let ZipRecruiter help. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash built. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-U-I-L-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We've all been there. One confusing email turns into 12 confused replies and then a meeting to get aligned. And who has time for that? Grammarly is a trusted AI writing partner that saves your company from miscommunication and all of the wasted time and money that goes with it. I personally love using Grammarly to help me strike the right tone when I'm sending important emails to my teams and business partners. I was amazed at how seamlessly it works with all the different communication tools I use every day. Grammarly works everywhere you work, integrating seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. No cutting, no pasting, no context switching. Personalized, on-brand writing help is built into your docs, messages, emails, everything. So join the 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. I'm Guy Raz. So it's right around 2010 when Andy Puttycomb and Rich Pearson decide to go into business together. But at this point, they still don't really know what the business is going to be. They have a hunch that Andy's meditation training could help a lot of people. The problem is, how do you scale Andy? The very first idea, actually, that I think on the first or second time that we met in Starbucks, I said... 
you should put this on an app. And Andy's like, yeah, I, I like the idea, but it's, it won't work because traditionally it's always been taught in a kind of teacher-to-student model, like in a kind of in live in person. And so that's when we started to play around with the idea of events and live events. So you were going to be a, a, like a live events business? We were. We were for several several for two years. years yeah, yeah, we were live event. We did live events. Andy, out of curiosity, I mean, Rich was kind of marinated in this world. He'd been in advertising and business development. Like this was a, a, a totally normal pursuit. Yeah. But you had been like you had given away all of your stuff, right? Like you, yeah. <laughs> you were like living in monasteries and wearing robes. Like, was yeah. a part of you uncomfortable with the with the idea of like a business? Yeah, I don't know if we really thought of it as it was almost more like kind of how do we just change the the behavior and the way people think about something. Obviously, to survive while I was working at the clinic, um, I'd had to charge money. And so I'd kind of got past that point. That was at the beginning of the clinic. That was a really big leap for me to charge money to teach somebody meditation felt Mm. so fundamentally different from where I'd come from. I spoke with enough teachers that really kind of coached me through that and helped me get understand that, well, that is the reality of living in the world. Like your landlord is going to want some rent. And if you have a skill, it's kind of okay to put a value on that and to, in, in order to share it. So I'd gone through that kind of more through the clinic process. So by the time we got to, to Headspace, it was more about just this big idea of, of demystifying meditation and getting it out there. So you guys needed to to build an events company or to – and events mm. company is probably not the best description. But this idea that if you wanted to spread this idea, you still needed money to mount events and to advertise. Yeah. And so, so where did you go first? Well, we went to um, – Andy had some clients at the clinic that he'd, you know, he'd worked with and people that he knew in Russia that had yeah. kind of contributed. So friends on that side. Went to my dad. My poor dad. I <laughs> Rich's dad, by the way, like, have to give him a shout out. He was amazing. Yeah, he I really mean, was. Honestly, if it hadn't have been for Ian, like, we, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have made it. And he, I remember going down to, to see him, and we presented him with this, this big kind of pitch. We put together a business plan and everything. And at the end of it, he said, I don't know if it was like, it's a terrible idea. He said, I don't think this idea is going to work. But he said, if anyone can make it work, he said, I think you two guys can. And he said, so, uh, you know, I'm prepared to, I'm prepared to To help. give you a tenth of what you've asked for. It, it, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's on you guys, not on the idea. Yeah. And, and I read that, um, that your dad invested or gave you 50,000 pounds um, to help start it. Yeah. But I'm, I mean, I'm wondering, I mean, did you tell him, you know, oh, we're going to have events and people are going to buy tickets and, you know, we're going to create a sustainable business that way? Or, or, or was there more like, I, don't, I mean, how would he have seen a return on his investment? The, at the time, it was purely just the events. And we felt that we could build a business from that. And that was the business that my dad quite rightly actually in hindsight said would never make a good business and it didn't um but the thing that i would say is one he never ever once asked for any shares in the business or any return for any of the money that he gave us and to the point that actually when we finally did do a fundraise in 2015 like our first proper fundraise that was when we kind of forced him to take 
shares for the amount that he'd invested in the early days. But he never genuinely, he said to me, I was never expecting to see any of that that money back. And, and how did you come up with the name Headspace? It was one of those beautiful moments. And trust me, there were so many bad names <laughs> that we'd... Uh, I don't remember them all, but we were we were actually going... I think we were going down to... Um, was it down to your dad's? See my dad, And yeah. we were on the way on the way down there and... And Rich kind of said, like, I really feel like it just it needs to have something very tangible in there. Like the mind is so intangible, like, you know, kind of the word head, I think, is really kind of clear what it what it's about. And I was sat in a passenger seat and I said, yeah, but it needs to feel spacious. Like that's what people want. That's what people are looking for. And we, you know, we looked at each other and went, headspace. It was just one of those. (laughs) And we, I mean, we spent months trying to go through brainstorm. There's so many bad ideas. What were some of the the names you were thinking? (laughs) I've got some. One of them was recognition. I know that, which sounds like a bad German techno club in Berlin. (laughs) Um, um, There was recognition. There was like mind space. Oh, there was mind lab. Mind lab, mind gym. Yeah. I mean, every combination that was, none of them good. (laughs) <laughs> None of them good. All right, so you have a little bit of capital to work with. It's 2010. Yeah. And what's the first thing you do? Do you, like, mount an event? Tell him how you spent the money, Richie. <laughs> Go on, tell, tell him how you spent the money. <laughs> well, I, there's, there's a few things. But the, coming from, I mean, I wince now, but the, the I felt, well, we both felt that meditation was really intangible and you couldn't touch it and you couldn't see it and you couldn't what is it and so we really wanted to create a physical experience so we spent of the 50,000 pounds we spent 20,000 pounds of it on the the kind of physical collateral to give out at the event so we 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 designed these beautiful cards about 60 different cards leading you through the 10 steps of meditation, tips for how to sit. And it was really the first sure, version, right. actually, of the of the app, in a way. Yeah, yeah I think so. That the 20 grand went on that. And then I remember sitting on the back of Richie's moped, traveling around London, looking at trying to find the right venue. And we eventually settled on on BAFTA. Um, the art and film... Right, the film and television, that, kind right, of. Yeah. Fairly kind of luxy kind of feeling. Um like just as far away from the community center vibe as we could get because mm. we were trying to, you know, put meditation in this new space. And I think it was £10,000 a day. So basically on that first event, I think we'd already blown 30 before we even kind of turned up. Okay, so so this first event happens, I guess, in May of, of 2010, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, how many people showed up? Yeah, we had about 200 people there. So it was... It and was this a, is in, in, in London at BAFTA? It was in London at BAFTA, yeah. And it was off the back of... We'd had an article in the the Times and it had launched about four weeks before the event. It was double page spread, which is really hard to get in the Times. And it said Britain's... It said Britain's top meditation guru, the expert's expert. And it was about how Andy had been training some politicians and sports, you know, professional athletes who had been coming to the clinic. Hmm. And it was a kind of profile piece on on Andy. And that, one, it helped to sell tickets to the events. And secondly, it started a process where we managed to get a book deal, a three-book deal with Hodder and Staunton. And the advance from that, which I think still, at that time, it was like one of the highest advances paid for a debut non-fiction author. 
really funded the rest of the business. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, exactly. It gave us, what was it, like 180,000 pounds. Wow. Um, which, at that time, at that stage in the business, that was huge. Transformational, probably, yeah. It was. Because yeah. I have to imagine that the events that you launched weren't really generating, because they're expensive, right? You've got to pay yeah. for the venue space yeah. and, yeah. you know, maybe provide... Yeah. We were losing money on them, guy. So... Describe what they were like. Would you sit like on a stage or in the front of the room and lead meditations? Was there food? Was there coffee? Tea? Yeah, one of my favorite headspace moments was in the taxi on the way to the first event with Andy, and I just looked at him, and I've been so busy trying to work out all of the, the you know, to get the, the event, logistics, the logistics right? of the event. I just turned to him. I said, "But what have you got planned for the day? Do you know? Do you know what you're going to talk about?" And he's like. I'm just working it out. And I was thinking, we're like five minutes from all these people turning up. And it started, like, the first event was Andy on stage for eight hours with some breaks. This is an, an all-day event. You, it was an all-day event. you got to feel sorry for the audience. But it was, it was just, it was me. It was me. In fact, probably I'd say all the BAFTA ones, right? So probably yeah. for the first, I don't know, six or eight events we did, that was the format. It was, hmm. it was eight hours on stage. A break for lunch, like a couple of breaks, kind of midway through morning and afternoon, and and yep. a break for lunch. Yeah, we did. We used to try and put them on every four to six weeks, and they got shorter. Yeah, as they got shorter, so we went from a full day to a half day, from a half day to sort of two hours, and eventually down to forty-five minutes yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and I think the shorter they became, the more often we did them, and we would do maybe sort of two or three in a day yeah. on a Saturday, rather than sort of one big one every six weeks or something. But it was. It was like hindsight's no sight, but we got to speak to pretty much every single person that came to those events. Hmm. And I don't know, if you think back to 2010 in the UK, probably the most cynical market in the world at that time around this type of subject matter. So it was just really interesting for us to see how different people responded. We got feedback cards that were very detailed that we made people fill out before <laughs> they, weren't they left. They weren't allowed to leave. They weren't allowed to leave until <laughs> yeah. they filled them out. But it was brilliant because it that really, that input and that feedback, it was just a big research group for yeah. when we eventually did launch the app. Yeah. So I guess it was 2012 when you launched the first version of the app. Um, how did that... Yeah. How did that happen? I mean, it sounds like, Rich, that you had already in your mind, you were thinking, we've got to put out an app. And Andy, it sounds like you were a little re- a bit reluctant about doing that. So how did you kind of come to terms with turning it into an app? So we talked about how could we recreate that 10-week journey in the clinic? How could we kind of give somebody that sort of same level of sort of benefit? Um, and definitely I, I was reluctant. But then when we, I think eventually they just locked me in a studio or something and said, just just try and record some stuff and see see what happens. Um, but I, I yeah, well, together we chatted and translated the 10-week the course into a 365-day program. And the, the reason that we got to that point was that we knew the business that we had wasn't working. And our friends and family had said, look, we really love you guys, but we're not, <laughs> we're not giving you any more money. This is a terrible business, like, well done, but enough's enough. And so with the last bit of cash that we had... We managed to pull in every single favor that we had left. And where were you recording the audio? I mean, did you have to get studio space and and do that? Yeah, we, I mean, so much of 
headspace is down to generosity and kindness of friends and people we knew along the way. And Rich had, you know, whenever we needed something or had a problem, he'd be like, oh, I know a guy or I know a girl. And and we phoned him up and he had this friend, um, Dre, who's um, not the doctor, um, who's, a, who's a very... <laughs> who's a very dear friend of both of us now. Hmm. And uh, Dre was, I mean, he was amazing. I mean, the first version of the app, he basically gave us free access to his studio for the first couple of years, right? He He had a recording studio. Yeah, yeah, he had a recording studio as part of his business, his production business. And, I mean, maybe we paid for the engineer. But other than that, I mean, he did everything for free. Wow. Uh, He was... Again, we just couldn't have done it with without him. You would just you would record ten minute meditations that you could. Yeah, they're actually longer. So it was, and at that time we, you know, we just did them all real time and everything. And so it was, um, yeah, it was ten minutes for ten days, fifteen minutes for fifteen days, and then it was twenty minute meditations for the rest of the year. And it was just your voice speaking yeah. a little bit. Silence coming in. Silence, like in real time. Yeah, all in real yeah, time. It was all yeah. in real time, yeah. And yeah, we put together this year-long course. Hmm. But when it came to the app itself, like the the coding part, did you like hire a tech team or, or did you just like have some outside company put it together for you? Well, the, my old agency at BBH helped us. They gave us some kind of help in kind of pulling it together. And then we also had a lot of freelancers. So we had... A freelancer in Bulgaria, we had someone in India, we had people in London. We just, it was really as scrappy as we could make it just to get the thing up. And then we managed to convince, this was a really big thing for us. There were two things that happened that really helped. First thing was a woman called Kathy Waters at Virgin agreed to put our content on every single Virgin Atlantic plane. And we pitched her in, down at Gatwick. Yeah. And she came back a couple of weeks later and said, yeah, we're going to put it on. We're going to put it on all our planes. Which was massive. We're going to put Andy's recordings on our, our planes. Yeah. And were they going to pay you for this or that you just no, provide them? No, no. <laughs> no, they definitely weren't going to pay. But it was a great yeah. exposure, right? Marketing. Great exposure. Yeah, it was massive. Huge. It was massive. Yeah. And then on the back of that, we then managed to convince the Guardian newspaper in the UK to put a million booklets on the front and we didn't pay for it. The booklets of, of what? So we, we put together they they wanted content and we wanted exposure. So yeah. it was a, it was a great it was a great deal. They they said could we come up with a a booklet on, on how to meditate? But they, they would actually kind of, you know, put the Printed pay out, for the yeah. booklets. Yeah. yeah. So we, we put together a, a little a mini sort of manual for the start of the year on, on how to meditate and how to have a mindful year. And did that immediately have an impact on, on the downloads of the app? That's exactly right. Like in that first month that we launched, we took £32,000 in revenue in that first January. Hmm. And that was, you know base that we'd never made a single penny <laughs> in any yeah. month leading up to that that was a really yeah, amazing moment for the for the team and, and then it was like oh my god this thing's gonna fall down unless we <laughs> we yeah. rebuild it all right so you guys are um scrappy and and this thing starts to get a little bit of traction and then you decide pretty early on 2013 you're gonna relocate you're gonna move uproot your lives and move to los angeles <laughs> yeah uh and why? We were coming over to, to the US and we'd done an event in New York, which was covered by New York Times. And, and what we found was that every time we came over to the US, we were making great connections, 
great relationships, great friendships, but we would always be saying, oh, we're from the UK, we're going back to the UK. Yeah. And very often those conversations would be, well, well great, when you, when you move out to US or when your company kind of moves out here, let's pick these conversations up. And so it got us kind of chatting. And I think both of us, I mean, we used to love coming to, to California especially. It always felt like home for both of us, you know. I think we really connected with, with the feeling here. And there were a lot, of, a lot of really good business kind of reasons for, for coming here. Yeah, um, I think, well, it's two things. I think in the UK you speak to someone about an idea and they'll give you a thousand reasons why you can't do it. And I think in America you say the same idea and they go, there's a thousand reasons why it will work and have you thought about making it bigger and can I introduce you to X, Y, and Z? And it's it's just a different, it's built into the culture and the psyche here in a way that it's not extra. Like you don't have to, it's kind of just part of the way that this country has been built and I think that if you are positive and you dream big, like there is no better place I think in the world to build a project like Headspace and I think we felt like that. I do want to ask you, um, Andy, about um, I mean, shortly after you moved to California, um, you were diagnosed with cancer. I was, yeah. So all of a sudden, you guys move the business there, and yeah. you're trying to grow it, and there's this huge setback. Um, first of all, you are fully recovered today. I am. Thank you, Guy. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, we're five, I guess, five years on from it now did you i mean this is a real test because you would work with people who are recovering from cancer treatment probably at the clinic in in london yeah. and and yeah. and it's different when it happens to you it is and it's, it's also different you know i'd spent many many years kind of doing practices specifically reflecting on one's own mortality and impermanence and and death and it's very different doing that in an abstract way in a monastery when you're healthy but I did find, I found meditation was kind of my rock throughout that period. It was, it was something that I came back to, not just once a day, but sort of many, many times a day. You know, it's not that I was free from fear, don't get me wrong. It was a scary time. But I think the temptation in those types of situations in life is to leap ahead to what might be, what could be, and to get kind of caught up in a lot of anxiety about that or maybe to even get into a kind of a conversation in your mind of you know is it fair or am I you know and thankfully like that training kind of allowed me to you know as much as possible to stay fairly kind of present and not to get sort of too too caught up in that stuff so were you kind of out of commission for for a while I was you know so I you know the the first week obviously you know we didn't I didn't even have medical insurance. We were so new in America. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we were having to establish ourselves in in the US and kind of get set up here and also manage the team back home as well because there were sort of, yeah, 12, 15 people in the office back in London. Yeah, it was. I think it was a challenging time, like, all round, really. It was a really... I didn't really know anyone in... We didn't know anyone. No. Like, we, no. we were really kind of out here on our own. And so... There was no other choice, and Andy had all these things booked in, all these speaking engagements, and the company needed money, and yeah. so we couldn't turn them down, and we'd signed contracts, so I had to learn how to kind of go out and do that, and it was it was a really challenging time, but also just to see, I think Andy and Lucinda and his wife go through that and feel very helpless, 
it's tricky. Like it was just a really tricky mix of emotions, I would say that I that I had, and a lot of just uncertainty. I mean, guy, the the load that Rich took on, like alongside just running the business, the day to day of running a a fast kind of growing company, he basically took on all of the events and talking kind of you know engagements, which were in Europe and in Asia, and I mean, Rich was. I can't remember how many miles you flew in. There was a space many of like thousands. a month. Yeah. I mean, tens and tens of thousands. Just he was, he was living living on planes. So it was it was really amazing to kind of watch actually just the, the capacity that he had to do that. When you guys got to LA, was it already clear that to build this into something bigger, you would have to raise outside money? Well, we were all, to be honest with you, we were a bit. Not a bit. We were very nervous about it, and it took us a well. I think it took me a long time actually to get comfortable with it. Um, it was kind of irrational fear about losing control of the the vision and the mission. I don't know if it was that irrational. Well, it, happen, you know, it happens a lot. It does right? happen a lot, and we probably heard a lot of bad stories. And yeah. so when we got to California, it was the product was it really did yeah. take off in a different way, and the business was really making serious kind of money and so at that point when like when people were coming to us saying we want to invest in your company I do think we had a lot of leverage because the business was generating a lot of cash and we didn't have many people working at the company Mm -hmm. so it enabled us we probably to be honest we probably went overboard but we met over 60 different investment houses uh, would be the best way to describe it until we found someone that we really felt aligned with and we could get the deal done that would work for us. I'm trying to imagine like pitch meetings. I know that a lot of investors when you got to California were really interested and and you probably didn't have to sort of sell them on the idea too hard. But Andy, I mean, just wondering, given like your background and like, you know, you studied to be a monk and you like gave up all your possessions and you had this epiphany as a, you know, 24 year old, 23 year old to live a simpler life. Now you Mm. are the, all those things that you did were going to be built into a business that these investors were talking about scale and, you know, a billion-dollar company. And was a part of you uncomfortable with that? I have to imagine it was. Um, I'm sure there were there were moments of discomfort. I think the bigger kind of thing, look, when, if they're talking about scale, well, that's great. We were talking about the same thing. We wanted right. to get this out right. to as many people as possible, and right. we couldn't do that without the money. I think that the temptation very often is to is to look at it in a very sort of black and white way, in, in just in society in general, and say kind of like, you know, okay, money money's bad, you know. Yeah. You guys are trying to do this, it's good, money's bad. I didn't really look at it in that way. I kind of, I think money can be incredibly helpful. You know, I was really excited about getting meditation out there and getting it to, to more people. So that was a, a way of doing it. It seems like one of the ways you guys have also managed this process because i think you've raised almost 75 million dollars after a a few rounds the first round was 2015 i think you raised about 30 million Mm dollars that rich you handle the business side really and andy you kind of focus on just really the content yeah they don't don't let me near the books and rightly so yeah richie richie (laughs) looks after the the business yeah but we got you know like andy said like we we work more as a kind of creative right. yeah. partnership on the things that, you know, Andy's passionate about and I'm passionate about. And, yeah, the day-to-day running is... Andy's not involved in, in, in a lot of that. Yeah. Um, you know, once you guys raised 
to these rounds. You had capital for marketing and to really push this out in, in new ways. And um, there was an ad. I think it came out in 2016. It was a. It was um, the ad was something like you know when I uh, when I meditate I crush it. When I meditate, you know. Oh I'm yeah. Focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And and so yeah. some people criticized this and said, look, you know, meditation yeah. is not about performance. This is not the point of meditation is not to make you a better investment maker. It's not to make you, uh, you know, a better football player. It's it's that is not what it's about. Um, how do you feel about that when people say that? It was interesting that that campaign because I think I think it actually did something really kind of helpful. We wanted to we wanted to show people that meditation isn't this thing, you know, and we're going to tell you how you're going to benefit from it. We wanted to say, look, there is this skill. Anybody can learn this skill and you can apply it with your own intention to any aspect of your life. The reality is, as I've seen over kind of a lifetime, is that very often the reason people start meditating isn't the reason they necessarily continue meditating. And that they might begin it because they want to be better on the football pitch. But over time, they start to realize it's showing up in other areas of their life as well. And yes, they're performing better, but actually they're starting to have perhaps better relationships. And um, and we wanted to break the mold and kind of say it's not just about feeling calm and having relaxation, you know, that kind of traditional way of thinking about meditation, that it can also be active, it can also be exciting, it can be joyful and it can be different. And, and I mean, I guess one of the reasons why you have to advertise your you know your app your product is because you have competitors right there are there are other meditation apps out there yeah which is which is like one of these kind of weird aspects about this whole world because you kind of expect the meditation space to be like peaceful and kind and gentle <laughs> but like this is a big business now right like yeah there are other people in the space so do, do you guys i don't know i mean do you sort of if you've got competitors, do you, are you kind of like looking over your shoulder to see what they're doing and, and are you trying to beat them? No, I think there are different ways of of kind of looking at it. Personally, I don't necessarily look at it as as competition in the conventional kind of sense. I, I feel like we have a job to do and we'll sort of keep doing that and what other people do, other people will do. And I don't really like the idea of, I think it's a very strange idea of competing for people's happiness. I mean, that sounds like a, it sounds kind of absurd in a way. So I kind of feel like, look, if our mission genuinely is to improve the health and happiness of the world, then if anyone's out there doing things that will genuinely improve the health and happiness of individuals, then that's something to celebrate. It's not something to you know, feel bad about from a competitive point of view. So anyone listening to this interview who's familiar with Headspace will recognize Andy's voice right away. And I know, Andy, you probably like people come up to you in cafes. Are you Andy from, from Headspace? And, and, sure. Um, because it's so um, distinct. And I wonder, I mean, is Headspace a company, an idea that can live without Andy's image and brand and personality behind it? You can definitely live without my image. I mean, this is a face for radio, <laughs> yeah. trust me. But um, this is probably a question for Rich rather than me. Oh, I, I think, so if you think about it, we do have a English female mm-hmm. voice in the product at the moment. Um, so that shows you that the essence and the quality and the authenticity of the content is still there, but it's just delivered by someone else. So... Yeah. We're in French, we're in German, we're going to be in Spanish, we're going to be like there's 
other languages coming out sure. this year for and the same the same kind of idea. So I definitely think it's not just about Andy's voice. And so, as long as we always stay true to the way that we build products, I think there's a huge room to bring in. Other voices, other experts that aren't Andy. So I mean, yeah, but you, you almost have to. You have to think about what is right because the value of a company can't be wrapped up around a single personality. <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't say that. I mean, I, yeah. I love yeah. Andy's no, it's true. That's why I, I love true. listening to you. Uh, you know, on, on the app. But if one day you both decide that you want to step out of this and your investors yep. want to sell it or whatever, it can't be wrapped around. No, Andy. that's correct. Exactly, and it's a lot. It's a lot of pressure to have it in in just that. I think I think that um, that cancer kind of scare actually was a really good, yeah, you know, a good wake up for for us to start thinking about that kind of, you know, it's too risky to have it, you know, what if that person, you know, or if I in October yeah. by a bus or eaten by a shark or whatever happens in California, <laughs> but, you know, like there is a risk, right? And so I, I think it's not only part of improving, you know, it's de-risking things for the company, but it's also helping to improve the experience for our members as well. And Andy, when you think about all that you had wanted when you were 23, 24, and a life of simplicity, you have a very complex life now. You guys have, what, 200-plus employees. Yeah. You know, you've got investors. You've got to have investor family. calls. You've got family. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you're running a business. People depend on you now. That's a very different life than the one that you had originally signed up for. Um, but do you prefer it this way? I honestly can't compare the two. Um, I can't say kind of, I can't look at one and say I prefer it to the other because for me, they're not separate. Obviously, they are different experiences of life, different environments, but the mind's still the same, right? And I, I didn't necessarily go into the monastery because that was necessarily how I would always want to live. It was more, I thought it would take that long for me to understand my mind. And... I feel really lucky to have been in a position where I was able to go to that environment to experience yeah. the simplicity of that and then have this incredible, almost what feels like a, a second chapter where I get to kind of share that. Um, but it's a, you know, it's something that all the kind of complications and stuff. Yeah, they're not easy, but you kind of you live with them because you care about it. How much of what happened with Headspace do you attribute to your hard work and your intelligence and your skill and how much to just luck. <laughs> <laughs> Did the laugh give it away? <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I, I, I don't know, I would describe it as just a lot of generosity. I'd say it's one of the things that... Yeah without that from a lot of people that really did just believe in us in the early days. Maybe you classify that as luck, I don't know, probably. Sure. Um but I would also say we've worked we've worked really, really hard. As hard as, you know, I've never been more committed to anything in my whole life because our hearts are in it. Yeah. I think there's there's just a, a set of ingredients that come together and we've contributed to that. But we've often said as well that sometimes it feels like there's just this there's this momentum. It's almost like a train yeah. that's just going. And it's like we grabbed on to, to the back of it. And to start with, we felt like we were kind of, you know, sort of just comfortably sort of traveling along. And then it just sort of picked up a load of speed. Yeah. And now we're just <laughs> hanging on to it at the back of the train. Because it's, it's, it's been incredible to, to be, a, we feel like we are part of something rather than necessarily making something happen. 
That's Andy Puttycomb and Rich Pearson, co-founders of Headspace. Today, Headspace has millions of users in 190 countries and a last reported valuation of $320 million. And even though Andy is no longer the only voice narrating on the Headspace app these days, he and Rich joke that if anything ever happens to him, at least they still have hours and hours of his meditation recordings. So I think, I think they've worked it out. There's a couple of thousand kind of in total. So if you are eaten by a shark, there's a thousand hours that are still there on tape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping it's, it's not going to go down that way. Yeah. But look, if it does, yes. yes. Say, on that cheery note, yeah. thanks for having us. <laughs> <laughs> Please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. This episode is sponsored by Freefly Apparel. Freefly's founders knew the outdoor industry had a big problem. Performance apparel was uncomfortable and often felt like plastic. That's how the idea for Freefly was born. And gear made from bamboo became the next big thing. Freefly's goal is to make the most comfortable outdoor gear and sun protection out there. And if you've ever felt their stuff, then you know they're definitely onto something. And right now, How I Built This listeners get 20% off. Visit our friends at freeflyapparel.com slash howibuiltthis to get 20% off your first order. That's freeflyapparel.com slash howibuiltthis for 20% off today. Everything Freefly makes is designed to be your most comfortable choice every time you head outdoors. So gear up and give them a try. Comfort on, adventure out. Harvard Business Review is the leading destination for smart management thinking. I've learned so much from reading articles on their website and in their magazine, going over their case studies, listening to their podcasts, watching their videos. Actually, they just published an article about building a startup in a tough funding environment that some of you listening right now might find useful. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code BUILT right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code BUILT to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Fall movies are about to heat up and Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR has you covered. We'll tell you whether some of the big films on the way are as good as you're hoping they are, and we'll help build a list of gems you can uncover for yourself. Start your Oscars prep early with Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And our story this week starts about nine years ago on top of a camel. I was on a camel safari in the Thar Desert in western India. This is Jensen Brem. And it was scorching hot. My Scandinavian skin was burnt to a crisp. And then snap, someone sat on my sunglasses. His only pair of sunglasses in the middle of the desert. The arms were completely crushed, totally destroyed. But fortunately, the front part of the frame was still intact. So Jensen took a piece of twine and tied it around the hinges to secure what was left of the frames to his head. And it actually worked really well. 
They weren't falling down my nose. They didn't fall off as we were racing camels through these sand dunes. They didn't pinch his head or his ears. And when I didn't want them on, I could just drop them around my neck or put them in my pocket and not have to worry about breaking them. Jensen liked the sunglasses so much that when he got back to the U.S., he kept using them. He just took off the twine and replaced it with a leather cord. And I wore that MacGyvered pair of sunglasses for the next five years. And wherever he went, people noticed them. Even strangers would come up to me on the street and be like, hey, where did you get those? And Jensen started thinking, you know, maybe I should start selling these things, like to bikers and backpackers and people like that. But I just didn't know where to begin. You know, sourcing the materials and and finding a manufacturer is such a daunting task. So Jensen partnered with a friend from college named Nikolai, who knew a little about manufacturing. And the two of them started to call around. They found a company to make the lenses for the sunglasses. But they still needed a really important component, the cord to take the place of the sidearms. You know, it had to be soft because it's going around your head and over your ears, but it had to be rigid enough to kind of keep the sunglasses secure. It also had to look nice and elegant, so it couldn't just look like a shoelace. But the cord they started with was actually a shoelace from a high-end boot company. And it looked really great, but Jensen and Nikolai wanted to make it waterproof. We would melt cedar beeswax in a pot in my kitchen and dip all these cords in the wax and then bake the cord in the oven for two or three minutes pull it out and dab it dry, and then repeat the process. But in the end, those first cotton cords kind of fell apart, and the guys had to keep looking. We must have gone through 12 to 15 different cord manufacturers. And when they finally found the right cord, they still had to find just the right thread for stitching it into a loop. But the first iteration came out, and it looked like someone had coughed up a hairball onto our cord. And by the way, at this point, Jensen and Nikolai were under a lot of pressure because they'd already done an Indiegogo campaign and had to assemble 3,000 pairs of sunglasses. And they were doing all of that by hand. Every pair has two cords, so we had to tie 6,000 cord ends, tie them, and then clip it, and then fuse it with heat, and then countersink it in the bead. After two months of working 12 to 17-hour days, and it was so stressful, Jensen and Nikolai were finally ready to ship out the glasses. They got some great reviews from outdoor magazines, they got into a few REI stores, and they're doing pretty well online. And they're going to finish their first full year on the market with about a million dollars in sales. Oh, and they call the shades? Ombras. People always are like, ombras, ombras. It's ombras, because ombra means shade in Italian. That's Jensen Brem. His partner is Nikolai Poloni, and they run ombras out of Seattle. And for every pair sold, they plant 20 trees. If you want to find out more about ombras or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. Our show is produced this week by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtina Rablui. Thanks also to Candice Lim, Julia Carney, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Sequoia Carrillo. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This.
The global smartwatch industry is worth $45 billion annually. The Apple Watch is the undisputed bestseller, but Apple's dominance wasn't always a given. In the wake of Steve Jobs' death, Samsung was ready to capitalize on the company's uncertain path and beat Apple to market with the first smartwatch. By 2013, Samsung had become an electronics powerhouse, a far cry from its humble origins as a family grocery store. It was ready to take on Silicon Valley's finest. In this face-off, both companies will have to sway consumers while surviving PR disasters as they open the Pandora's box of interactive biometrics. Hi, I'm David Brown, the host of Wondery's show Business Wars. We go deep into some of the biggest corporate rivalries of all time, and in our latest season, we're clocking the fierce battle over wearable technology between Apple and Samsung. Make sure you follow Business Wars wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.